are listening to the Quarter to Three podcast, where this week I am so thrilled to have with me two fellas who uh, claim to be the sole employees slash owners slash designers at a place called Min Max. Is it is it Min Max Studios? Games. Yeah, we're, we're too small to even be a studio. <laughs> so that was Andrew Hume. Andrew, hello. Thank you for being here. Hello. And then we also have with us uh, Richard Cliff. Richard, hello, and thank you for joining me. Thank you. Now, you guys have made, I, I presume, uh, Andrew, you've been very busy this year. You've had two releases. We'll talk about your second one in a minute. But you guys have both been very busy. You have released, I guess, MinMax's first game is Space Pirates and Zombies. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I was wondering about the second release, and then I realized what you meant. Yeah, so, so real quick, Andrew, your second release this year, uh, what, what is the title of your second release? That's uh, Michael. Michael. So you have yeah. a, a little child at the house named Michael. Uh, it's been quite a year for you, I imagine. Oh, yeah, yeah. We started uh, uh, Spaz when my first son was born, about a month after, and then we ended it with the second one being born, so it's... Uh, <laughs> Been busy the whole time, child-wise. Now, uh, Space Pirates and Zombies, a.k.a. Spaz, um, is a game that there is no way only two people made it. So I want you to tell me about the rest of the employees at MinMax. I'm guessing you must have about 20 people working there. Is that right? (laughs) No, it's just the two of us. (laughs) We don't sleep. We don't eat. (laughs) Pretty much. Well, so one of the things that I noticed uh, about Space Pirates and Zombies while playing is it doesn't feel like a typical indie project. I mean, you guys have really rich artwork and, and even sound. Like I think of the Chatter recordings, which sounds like you actually hired actors who were having fun doing the recordings. Uh, certainly the, the layers of the artwork, the, the aesthetics of the ship design, for instance. There's no way this game was just created by two dudes Tell me I'm wrong. Sorry. It's uh, all the sound stuff and art stuff was uh, done by me. Um, I'm sure you've heard the notorious line, the hole has been breached and the science is leaking out. And uh, <laughs> So, I mean, I'm not too bad with the voice work, so I'm able to do most of the radio chatter myself. Uh, my girlfriend sound does effects. some radio chatter. Do a sound I, effect. Okay. But the, yeah, what's the mass drivers? Yeah, what's everybody mass- likes to hear the mass driver sound effect, so it's a... Uh, it's, it's hard to do it on the microphone because I usually <laughs> multi-layer them, but actually a lot of the sound effects on the game are done with my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that, now, so uh, explain to me then, so how long does it take a couple of guys like you to do a game like Space Pirates and Zombies, which does feel like 20 people made it? What, what was the six process months? like? A six-month process. No, no, <laughs> that's what we thought. <laughs> that's what we budgeted for. Um, that didn't quite work out. Um yeah, it takes it took two years. Um, we ran out of money after six months, and then had to get a little bit creative. But we loved the game at that point, and we couldn't stop. Um, what happened is, though, we we ran into this kind of weird catch twenty two where we had spent so much time on the game that we had to make the game better to ensure it set, it sold, mm-hmm. which always took longer. Which meant we had to make the game better so it sold more, uh, and we just kept doing that until you know our our families were were scowling at us and. Yeah, it's out now, finally. Well, was there a time in the process when it would have looked and or played substantially different than it does now? Like, was there a time a year and a half ago when you had something with much more elemental graphics that you decided, we're not releasing this, we're going to put more time and, and energy into it? 
Well, the whole game was was extremely iterative. Um, it doesn't bear any real resemblance at all to what we started to make. Uh, at one point, it was uh, open world to the point where you flew, you didn't have a, a solar system map. You flew from planet to planet in the actual uh, game world. Now, that sounds really cool, because at first we were trying to make something like GTA in space, mm-hmm. but... There's not much to f- do when you're flying from place to place in space, and it got really, really boring. So that was a, a major change. I mean, at one point, Richard had a carnival at the beginning of the game that was tutorial instead of what you have now. Pretty much everything has has gone through a few iterations. The the uh, what's it called? The what's I should say what's it called now? The ship design screen, the hangar screen, whatever it's become, mm-hmm. that has gone through three major revisions. Um, at one point, you could have 40 ships on your side. That would just turn into a giant <laughs> cluster F of, of you know. Uh, yeah, it's it go, it's gone through a lot. I mean, if we were to make it again, it would probably take a year because we would actually make what we're making now instead of making you know three or four different projects and then and then merging it into what it is now. Well, so backing up to two years ago, uh, tell me briefly where you guys were. What were you doing? Uh, as uh, like, do, I, I presume you had some kind of day jobs going. Were you in game development, uh, Andrew? What was your background two years ago when you guys decided to sit down and make Space Pirates and Zombies? Oh well, Richard and I actually worked together at Radical. Um, they made well, our big project there together was uh, Scarface, mm-hmm. and we we're, we're really proud of that project and. Uh, if you haven't played it, it's like GTA, but with uh, Al Pacino. Um, it was a little bit, it was a little bit, I would say, deeper in the metagame, which is what Richard and I tend to handle. Uh, and then after that, we had worked on Scarface 2, which unfortunately never saw the light of day, but it was uh, about two years we were into it. Um, the team loved it. The, everyone was on board. I can't say too much about it, but it's known to exist, so we can say that it existed and it was awesome. Well, that actually that that clears up a lot of mystery for me, Andrew, because when I think of you know when I think of Space Pirates and Zombies being something that the twenty people sat down to make, it's either twenty people or two guys who have a lot of experience with open world games. And although I've never played Scarface, I know it's well known as one of those open world games that you should have played uh, that had that cool meta game. Like in Scarface, couldn't you like? buy properties like you guys had much more of a sense of a gta meets like what ea tried to do with the godfather exactly uh, it was uncanny actually sorry to interrupt but when when we saw godfather 2 and mm-hmm. then and when we were working on scarface 2 we're like okay where's the mics in the studio what's going on here <laughs> it's crazy well tell me in a nutshell then what was the metagame like in scarface well, the original game, I mean, you kind of went around, you were taking over um, fronts to essentially push your, your coke through, and, you know, you're kind of picking up coke supplies and trying to find dealers and all this stuff, and we had all these different branches where you could screw over your dealers and kill them and take your money back, but it affected your reputation, and you have to go out to, like, uh, you know, the the islands and pick up all this coke on your speedboats and smuggle it in, and it, it was actually pretty interesting. So a lot of the missions we had, they... They weren't because the story or the plot was telling you to do it. It's because you needed all this money to to maintain this empire, and and you were trying to push it through all these fronts that you were purchasing, and you'd have to constantly upgrade them and repair them and make sure that you had goons kind of protecting them and all these things, and you had dudes on the street, you know, and patrol guys going around and all these other things. And we, We just tried to make it as involved as 
as possible, but it was all kind of related to things that you wanted to do rather than kind of going through a story saying that you're doing these things because you want to. You know, like, I find, like, a game like GTA, they ask you to do all these things that, like, you're building an empire, but it's kind of a linear flow. Well, mm -hmm. in Scarface, we tried to have, like, a metagame, so there was, there was strategic elements to it. You could do things out of order and, you know, go after the certain properties that you wanted first and get the benefits that you wanted at the time and, and you know, put, put a lot more money into your properties and pimp them out how you wanted to and that kind of thing. So we just tried to make sure that there was a lot of strategy involved, and a lot of that ended up carrying over to our work in, in SPAS. So when, yeah, when you describe that, Richard, this idea of like a cocaine-based economy, you know, it does make me think of uh, what, what I feel was just as from a game design perspective, a really, really smooth bit of work in Space Pirates and Zombies where you have an economy based on this sort of uh, trilogy, not trilogy, this sort of three-tiered economy based on goons, res, and data, and how they're all interchangeable. And, you know, you mentioned the Scarface uh, game playing like where you did things because you wanted to. When I do missions in Space Pirates and Zombies, normally, you know, you have the story missions, but a lot of times I'm doing things because I need res, or because I need goons, or because I've got extra goons and I want to train them in, trade them in for data. Uh, like th that seems to be this this overarching economy, at least in the early part of the game, that really drives what players do and, w and why they do it. Uh, tell me a bit about how that economy was created. How did you come? To, to that in Space Pirates and Zombies? Well, Res, Res by far came came first, but it wasn't... Again, it always comes back to this this iteration, which you can't, you can't do in a large company because there's so many people and so much money invested in what you're doing. Experimentation is um, pretty worrisome. I mean, I've worked in large companies for over 10 years, and it... They don't like that <laughs> very much when you suddenly make a huge shift in the game. But early on in Spaz, uh, our resources were much closer to what you would see in EVE, to the point of where they had actual density. So you picked up a, a, a canister of gold, and it weighed an absolute ton. <laughs> you picked up a canister of water, you, you know, all these different things. They had different densities. They would bring your ship to a halt. But over time and playing it, we realized, you know, you, you don't know what's in the canister. So then we started coloring the canisters based on their size. Um, but even then, so you had a, a, a canister that could hold 50, but it had five in it. That wasn't really very representative of what you were getting. And it got um, kind of shrunk down and shrunk down and refined and refined until we, as, as we did with pretty much everything in SPAS, we get to the, the real core of the idea. Mm -hmm. So instead of uh, overwhelming you with, more of a spreadsheet of information we say okay what what is it that that you're actually doing here okay you're collecting something to build stuff with okay so that's now going to be to be res um, which is a single um universal resource that will will do the job i mean uh what was it star control 2 had ru and res was ru for a long time <laughs> before it came it became res as well and res was risen and resin and res and all these different things as well um, data, of course, is, is level ups, um, experience like you would find, uh, I think the, the first game I saw where they did, uh, well, maybe not the first, but in the first fable, I remember that you would pick up all these experience orbs and it was, it's kind of like that, right? Mm -hmm. It's neat to see these skittles come out of things and goons came way late. Um, we did, we realized we needed that third resource. So you had something to, to offset against the other two and, 
way before then we had people getting sucked out of, of uh, airlocks and escape pods and all these things. Then we finally realized, you know, why don't we just sell these guys as slaves, right? We're pirates. What the heck? And it, it really worked out well. Uh, I also, it strikes me that a lot of space games that have trading, you know, you talked about things like trading gold and water, where the gold has very little cargo space, but it's worth a lot. The water probably takes up more cargo space, not worth as much. Uh, that's the standard format for trading in space games, is you've got these sort of fancy names on on items that mean nothing to you. You know, they're just names on things on a spreadsheet, uh, and then you fly them around, you get varying prices for them, and you get your money. Uh, it, it, one of the things I love about Space Pirates and Zombies is that I feel like I can level up just by trading, just by flying around, you know, buying goons, selling them for res at some place, and then buying data for the res or, for, or whatever. Like, I feel like I can fly around and go up levels by being a trader. You know, that that your economy kind of opens up that kind of gameplay, that, that sensation. Yeah, one of the goals is to have anything you do. Um, Richard can speak more more to this, but you have progress in whatever you do. We tried to do that in Scarface as well because we don't want you to to feel that whatever is fun for you, you're wasting time because you're not getting the the, the best value for the money. I know in you know in uh, games like WoW, you want to be killing a specific animal at a specific time to get your your best possible increase in experience. For us, this is like okay, you're doing something that means you're going to get better and kill more stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can kill stuff either based on um, how good you are. I mean, there are some people who can probably kill stuff 10 levels higher than, than them. Or you or you can say, you know what, I'm not a very good fighter, and just and just work your way up through the, the systems that are lower than you and just be a bully. It's, it's, it's quite nice to have the, it's kind of self-guided, uh, a self-guided experience in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another another area where I see that same kind of freedom apply is in the way that ships progress and are built. Uh, one of the things that strikes me about Space Pirates and Zombies, apart from a lot of other traditional RPGs where you level something up or improve a certain area, it seems like you guys really want the players to have the freedom to kind of rejigger the gameplay experience at, at will. Like if I want to play the moment-to-moment gameplay in Space Pirates vs. Zombies – is basically flying my ship around and shooting stuff. However, if I want to make that a matter of guided missiles, where I just like spam the missile button and hang back, uh, I can do that. If I want it to be a more skill-based thing, where I'm aiming beam weapons, I, I can do that. If I want to play with this cool stealth mechanic you guys have, where a stealth ship does extra damage, kind of like playing a rogue in an MMO, I can do that. And And... It seems like Space Pirates and Zombies is is a bit unique in that it lets me change that experience at will by going into the hangar screen and just redesigning my ships. Um, a lot of that comes down to uh, I mean I'm I am absolutely a, a massive Diablo fan, so I mean we when we made Space Pirates and Zombies, we, you know we took a lot of inspiration from games like Star Control and that kind of thing, but we also wanted to include some of these other things from from some of the other games that have been made in the last couple decades and and you know, a game like Diablo, they have so much variety with the character classes and, and, you know, the fact that you can have 50 different kinds of a barbarian even. Mm-hmm. And we really wanted to kind of capture that and let you have as many options as possible. Like, like even with the research tree, there's, there's so many different ways that you can go down the tree and, and then you multiply that by how many different ways you can have your ships. And then you multiply that by how many ships you have. Mm-hmm. And then all the metagame on top of that. So it really just comes down to we want to just empower the player with as much stuff as we can. We can um 
so that they can do the things they want to do. Like when I talk to Andrew about his playthroughs versus mine, um, they're totally different. Like he'll do things totally differently than I do. Um, and when we look on the forums and, and read all the user feedback, they in turn do things that are absolutely crazy. And sometimes we end up having to f- make a couple tuning changes because oh, they yeah. find some <laughs> random holes. Like, like some guy the other day was able to make a ship that was just nothing but boosters and one cannon that shot so fast it looked like a <laughs> laser beam. And, um, but we want to give the people those options so that you know they can change on the fly. But it also encourages them to play the game you know five or six times. And there's some people out there that that really go to town and play it a lot, which is great. And I hope that as we continue to add to the game, that it'll keep making the the experience more rich, so that they keep playing it. And there's a lot of variety to it. Now, you guys had a uh, I, I presume it was a public open beta. Is that correct? Before the game actually came out. It was paid, but yeah, okay. anyone anyone who paid at that point, I mean, we were. It was down to to days before we were bankrupt. <laughs> so, I think I think I had in the world I had four hundred dollars left before I had to sell the house. So wow, wow, Andy. yeah, it was it was very very much at the end of the line, um, and all through beta we we. You know, we took everyone's comments, and we actually really do appreciate that. It, it took off quite well, and people started started telling us, you know, who. I guess one of the things uh, that was really hard for us as we played the game is Richard and I didn't, or had made it. We didn't know that other people wanted to play this. We were always told where we worked, you know, in the big AAA studios that um, people don't like this kind of game. Other designers we'd work with would say, you know, even now would say, what the hell, what did you guys make? You know, it's not, that's not right. But we get mails every day from people who are, like, thanking us for making something like this, which is actually really niche. Um, not everyone will like it. I mean, even reading a, a lot of reviews, it's like, it's it's different and, and you know, maybe 70% of people just won't really get it. They won't, they don't want to have to kind of think for themselves in the game. They want to be more presented with a story instead of what we call a user story. But anyway, that's uh, a little bit off track. What what it comes down to for the, the beta was that I think it was the beta was about three months. Um, it allowed us to survive, which was, was really great. It allowed us to get uh, a lot of uh, user changes in so that when we finally did come out, um, we were quite quite happy with the result in that time which was really lucky for us as well um originally we we didn't uh, get accepted by steam and that was a pretty big blow to us because as we've been making the game we were like okay you know there's no way we're not going to be on steam so we'll make <laughs> we'll, we'll make our money back there's no problem and and everything's good the game's cool um we'll send it off and then one day we get the response you know no no we're not going to take you guys and uh, okay so we went into a bit of emergency mode then you know um yeah. and you feel the beta uh changed that you, you feel oh, the response to the beta got steam to eventually accept you they contacted us the the at what happened was um pure luck um we were working with impulse and Due to Impulse um, and and GameStop merging, mm-hmm. it took a while for some of the contract stuff we needed to to go through to go through, and they were our exclusive distributors for a little while. It also happened that they really really liked the game, and they put us on their front page for I, I don't don't remember I think it was five or six weeks mm-hmm. that we you know they themed our our their website to us and were pushing us like crazy, 
and we actually got noticed because up until then, um, Richard and I don't really have any at all business or marketing experience. <laughs> so we've made games for a long time, but we never had to do any of that half of it. And we probably shit the bed for the most part, sorry to swear. <laughs> but, you know, we weren't telling people that the game existed a year ahead of time or any of that stuff. We were just working and working and working. So that when it finally did drop, um, nobody really knew we existed. So that was a, it was a pretty huge help. Mm-hmm. And then that allowed Steam to say, oh, hey, you know, people like that. And, and now they've pretty much made it possible, Steam, for us to continue making Spaz 2 and hopefully beyond that. Now, uh, one of the things that I, I presume also that this beta did for you guys, uh, being a small company and having so many different options, like Richard was talking about, in terms of how the ships come together, uh, that must have been invaluable in terms of, of tuning it and in terms of closing loopholes, like you mentioned, the guy putting all the boosters and the one gun on a ship. Uh, what sort of things did you learn about your game that you didn't know uh, during the beta? Well, I mean, we added a handful of things, actually, that we didn't really think the game needed after we we had released the initial beta. So there's probably been about 400 to 500 or so tuning fixes. Um, Some people really go to town, and I think there's some people out there that may have played the game more than we have at this point. Um, So there's always the balance and tweaking that needs to be done, but uh, we added things like uh, respec. Like, we didn't realize that, you know, with a super complex upgrade tree and all this stuff, that people would get themselves in a situation where they're really close to the end of the game, and they maybe haven't put as many points into their shields or hull as they should have, and they really... And we didn't really want to put respec in, because we felt it kind of deducted from the replay value, but when we looked at how many people were having troubles at the time, we were like, okay, we added it in, and it turned out that it didn't really deduct from the experience at all. It gave people the even more freedom and, and more empowerment to, to change up the way they wanted to do things as they as they went along. Um, another thing that we added um, just before release was was the specialists. I'm sure if you've played it, you've seen them drop everywhere. Is that people wanted to have more more of like a treasury hunt kind of experience as they went through the game, and we didn't really have any procedural generated loot in the game. So when we created specialists, we wanted to say there's something in the world that you'll always be able to find that'll be different every time you find it. So just by virtue of playing the game, you're going to always get some kind of reward that you don't expect. And it always kind of comes back to that, that, that loot kind of mentality that you get from a game like Diablo. Um, but I mean, as we've been kind of, even still after release, it's a, it's well over half of our job is just combing through all the feedback. Like I'm on the forums for at least an hour or two a day, just kind of combing through it all. And we got a huge monstrous list of suggestions and tweaks and all this kind of thing. But, uh, the people have just absolutely been totally invaluable to us. Um, the game wouldn't be what it is without without the feedback that we've been able to collect from our fans and and people have been really really good about being very specific about things that they have found and, and they've been super kind to us in that regard. Now one of the one of the things I noticed that happened in the the recent update, you guys just uh, pushed through a big rebalancing update. It added the cool little numbers where you can see the damage being aff- uh, applied to ships. Uh, you also, uh, I think, it seems like you kind of revamped the way specialists work. Like they were getting too powerful at the end of the game. Is that correct? Oh yeah, that was uh, specialists went in. Oh, it, it feels like hours before we put out the the final, like mm-hmm. before we put out 1.0, because we we've been kind of racing, well, for the last two years, and we we shoved them in, but the numbers that 
the, the, the high end on a specialist was just too high because um, you think, okay, at the end of the game, um, the, the enemies actually were in beta really, really hard, and a lot of people would quit the game, and, and you know, this, this game's broken, it's too hard, and it was legitimate, it was way too hard, because Richard and I, who had tuned it, had played the game forever, mm-hmm. and it wasn't too hard for us, but, you know, we knew every single trick that there was. Um, so then what we did is we tuned down uh, what we call Sector 4, which is Chapter 4 of the game, where the, the zombies are really, you know, in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. Um, right after that, tuning that down, though, we added specialists, which you know you think, okay, this thing has a has a twenty five percent bonus to damage. That's that's fine, but if the thing also is, let's say, uh, an, an uncommon or an elite specialist, it's going to get some bonus to that, maybe another twenty five percent. So now it's doing you know about thirty percent bonus, and then you have three of them. Okay, so now you're suddenly doing uh, double damage that any other thing in the game is doing, and and of course the end game, which is when all the best things are falling, the the, the zombies just couldn't keep up with that because they don't have specialists. There's no there's no brain eating specialist anywhere, so it was uh, it got a little bit too easy. Now I'm a little concerned that we might have overtuned it a bit. It might be a little bit too hard. Uh-huh. Um, but that's probably better than too easy because you can always knock the skill level down if if need be. Now, uh, what? How many? Uh, there's normal, casual, and is there just insane? Is it just the three skill levels or four? No, there's casual, which is it is pretty casual. I mean, you'd really not have a hard time with it. Mm-hmm. Normal is what you're meant to play your first playthrough. I, I I worry a bit because our audience are probably a lot like Richard and I, and they go, bah, normal, you know. I every, any game I could play on hard. No, but you really should play it on normal your first time because that's what we meant. For normal, I don't know. You should have maybe called it something else to say we really mean it. But, um, <laughs> I mean, some people go straight to insane, which is a real big mistake. After normal, there's veteran, which in veteran, there's no bonuses. Everything is, is equal. Um, ah, see, now, if I'd known that, Andrew, that would make me go immediately to that one on my first playthrough. <laughs> I know. I know. We didn't want to. Yeah. It, but the problem is the computer's a better shot than 99% of the people out there. Ah, right. Um <laughs> I spent a lot of time writing, uh, like, intercept logic and stuff for, for the cannons, and it, I didn't put enough artificial stupidity in there. <laughs> I mean, the AI, don't get me wrong, the AI does a lot of stupid stuff, but it's a, it's a hell of good at aiming. Um, mm-hmm. And it'll, it'll put, put a lot of damage out on you. Um, after that, you get into expert, which I think Richard played through recently. I haven't, I haven't touched expert yet because I'm scared. But that's <laughs> when the computer starts to get a bonus in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that expert offsets, for the most part, your specialist. So now expert becomes uh, a pretty hard version of the game. And if you don't have good specialists, you're really you're really uh, digging yourself a deep hole. And insane, which unfortunately, a lot of people are trying, uh, and we recommend you don't. <laughs> it's not fair. Um, I we we assume you can beat the game on on insane, but and I, I always. Personally, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start an insane game, but I know it's going to take me 100 hours, you know, to get through the thing. And it's just impossible. Like, with my other additions, as you said, I don't have the time for that. Um, but insane, everything's pretty much ramped up to to 11. You know, mm-hmm. it's... it's uh, the, the AI is going to do 200% damage to you. Everything's going to cost twice as much. If you don't really monitor your your res, you are going to be mining for a long time. It's a really really mean version of the game. 
Um, now, do you guys have access to metrics about like what percentage of people have gotten how far into the game on what difficulty? Is that is that something that you can see, for instance, on Steam? I kind of wish we did. The best we have um, that I know of, I mean, there might be something. Uh, we can see how many people are buying it per day. We can see how many people are playing it, which we really were quite shocked. For quite a while, we were in the top 100, I guess because the game takes so long, and you know, when people were playing it, they were having fun. Um, we stayed in there for quite a while, and the patch, I think, pushed us back in uh, for now, which is mm-hmm. which is quite nice. But uh, it always is kind of uh, it would be nice, I guess, to to have have the the game kind of communicate back to a server somewhere. I'd I'd really like to know myself. Yeah. Right. Uh, now um, there are you you mentioned earlier, Andrew, that uh, you, you kind of feel like you're a niche game, and I can kind of agree. I mean, I I think you have. Like, I don't think of it as a niche game like uh, a war game with hexes or something. Uh, I think there is kind of a universal appeal to flying a spaceship around and shooting stuff. And early on, it, it's a, a relatively simple game that lets people do that, that sort of get that cool sensation of, hey, I'm flying a ship around, I'm shooting stuff, it blows up, treasure pops out, and I get it. Like, I think there's a great universal appeal immediately to this game. Uh, however, you guys do a very risky thing that I want to ask you about, uh, that I think might um, maybe hurt you in terms of how people perceive the game, and I think it's certainly responsible for maybe some of the negative reviews. And what you do is that you kind of, I don't know about hide from the player, but save until later some of the unique selling points of the game. Uh, Andrew, you mentioned a section four. Uh, I say, I, to me, the game goes through three and maybe four very distinct phases that feel different from each other. Specifically, the fourth section, the, the very ending, is like a completely different game. Uh, I did a column, I have a strategy gaming column that was on GameSpy, it's now on GamePro. But on GameSpy, I wrote a column about games that change the rules uh, once you get into a later stage in the game. Uh, and you guys are the ones that kind of inspired me to look at strategy games that do this. Well, um, thanks. Now, isn't that, though, kind of risky? And don't you feel like, in a way, you do something special and unique, but you also kind of hurt the potential appeal? Like, you, you kind of make it where somebody can play this game for two hours and think, okay, I've seen everything it's going to do. I'm going to sit down and write a 7 out of 10 review. Uh, yeah, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was it's kind of a, a mental struggle for us because what we what we learned when we were making games, Richard and I, is that you front load everything, right? It's got to be the first couple hours of the game has to be the best. People don't play the game, you know. Half of your audience won't even play past the first two hours. Who cares, right? Uh, when we made Spaz, we decided to make a game that we want to play, and that just didn't seem to ever happen anymore where you'd kind of get through the game and the game would actually change on you. So that was um, early on a, a design intent? Yeah, it, that's that's kind of a, a philosophy, I think, of our company. Mm-hmm. So we do we are willing to shoot ourselves in the foot in some ways. Um, you're 100% right with everything you said there. Like, if we had had more stuff up front and we get messages about where the hell are the zombies all the time too, you know, because yeah, you're going to wait a long time. You might play the game for 10 hours before you see that your second zombie or more. Yep. Um, but it does go through three very, very different phases. I mean, the first, the first part of the game that you're, you're building up and hopefully by the time you get into the inner stars, which isn't 
so I won't go too much into the end, but isn't spoiling it for anyone. Um, you should feel like a big bully by by the end of uh, chapter two. You get into chapter three, and then you just have to go straight into scrounge mode. Like uh, Richard and I really love the scrounging in games. Like you know, the beginning of Fallout, you're scrounging around for a bullet or or whatever. You know mm-hmm. that that scrounging feeling is is it. And the scrounging and hiding and, and trying to be sneaky. Like when people see zombies and, 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 and humans fighting and they're, they're picking up blueprints, we want them to be doing that. We want them to be running around in a cloaked vessel, you know, kind of working under the radar, trying to build themselves up. And then you get into Sector 4, and then Sector 4 is, or Chapter 4 is a complete game change. We had to write something called the hack manager for sector four because it's just so different that everything, all the functions in the game say, if sector four, go this way, otherwise go that way. (laughs) Well, I do want to talk in, in spoiler specific terms. So if you are listening, you have not played space pirates and zombies, then I have not done my job because I've, I've heartily recommended this game on on this forum on on quarter to three for a while. So if you're listening, I hope you've played space pirates versus and zombies. If you haven't played it, then maybe fast forward about, about 10 minutes because I want to talk about sector four, the, the, the fourth chapter. Uh, and Andrew and Richard, let's sort of think of this as a director's commentary section. So feel free to spoil things and talk specifically about stuff that happens in, in the fourth bit. Um, all right. So that said, let's get into some spoiler stuff. Uh, you're, it's called Space Pirates and Zombies, and I love the idea that the zombies don't come out until later because you introduce the world and then you introduce this new kind of enemy and then you introduce what this new kind of enemy does to the world. Uh, and it's dramatic and it's something that very few zombie games do. I can think of one counterpart, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but uh, tell me about uh, – so obviously you wanted the game to change in Sector 4, Chapter 4. Uh, tell me about what ideas you, you sort of batted around and how dramatically you did or didn't want the game to shift. Because I'm, I haven't finished it yet. I'm still playing Chapter 4. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. It's a completely different experience. But I also feel like I haven't figured some of it out. Um, you, you change the rules, and in a way, you don't necessarily explain the rules. There's a lot of like trial and error. You have to sort of see, oh, okay, this is the zombie attacking me. Here's a system that needs help. Here's how I de, uh, you know, an infested system, and I go in and I'm locked in here until I do this mission. Uh, explain to me a bit about the thinking behind how you guys changed everything in Sector Four. It, uh, it there's actually a lot of different reasons why Sector Four kind of ended up. Well, or the whole game, the whole flow of the game kind of ended up the way it did, actually. Um, you know, when we initially started building the game, we had a whole pile of different races, and uh, as we kind of realized there were just two dudes, uh, we had to make some reductions, and the zombie one was the only one that really survived. And for a very, very long time, zombies weren't as cool as they were in the game as they are now, they you you actually didn't have any zombified ships like the way you see them. You just had the the breeder style ships that you couldn't control, um, and and they were interesting. And but we ended up kind of even though they were in the title, we we kind of we kind of sidelined them for a long time um, until we were like, you know, this really isn't working. They kind of suck. Um, and we just bit the bullet, and we ended up doing, like, a huge revision on the zombies, and they could infect your ships, and they had all these critters and all these other cool things. Um, but at the time, we had done a lot of work on the flow and the story, so it was like a balance to figure out where we were going to put these this element into the game. Like, we knew we wanted it 
to be like predominantly in the game. But we also didn't want to introduce it too quick because I find with a lot of games, like when you stop experiencing new things, you get a little bit bored. And if you stop experiencing new things about 20% into the game, then then the rest of the game kind of gets flat, and you and you very rarely finish the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do get into the zombie thick of things in a, about halfway through, and we kind of introduce like the zombie light mechanic. And then, yeah, we do a total strategic metagame in Sector 4, which is totally different. Um, but again, like just like a lot of the zombie work, it came pretty late. Um, and it was actually a pretty big risk even even then. It was like, we're talking maybe a month or two before beta. We're like, yeah, let's make this crazy thing um, <laughs> out of Sector 4 and try something totally different. And we weren't really sure it was going to jive with the rest of the game. And it was kind of like an experiment. But it turns out people really enjoy it. And uh, and we do get some feedback where it's it's like, why, why isn't this stuff more predominant at the beginning of the game? Um but I mean, I guess like a lot of that's just part of a learning experience. I mean, if we could do it all again, we we maybe would int- have introduced some of this stuff a little bit earlier. But but kind of like I said before, it's um, it's actually not we're not super regretful that we save some of these cool things till later because it, it encourages the people to actually finish the game rather than just kind of feel like they've they've experienced everything halfway through. Because there's so many games I've played that are that are like that. You're like, ah, I'm not gonna bother finishing this because I think I've seen everything. Um, but you are right. A lot of people will, will will miss some of these huge things that we have at the end of the game. So it's well, uh, it's just was... kind of confusing how it all kind of came to be, and it's part of the iterative process. You know, it's just mm-hmm. things come together in a way you might not expect. Uh, as a guy who loved discovering that, and who does love the fact that you guys don't introduce these elements earlier on, I did love the fact that this was this was a, a dramatic shift that came late in the game. The only thing that I would suggest, and I, I'm so reluctant to suggest anything because I feel like you guys know so well what you're doing, but I would have loved for there to have been some kind of like teasers or something suggesting as I'm playing that somewhere down the line there's something cool waiting for me because that was actually what got me to play space pirates and zombies is that i heard other people talking about it in language suggesting that something was going to change dramatically later in the game uh and if i had just sat down and played it and not known that was coming uh like i i I would have loved for there to be signposts or suggestions or something in the game to say you know what something is coming you know there's a storm on the horizon or, or, or some sort of foreboding sense that all this could go away or all this could be dramatically shifted um yeah, I think we might have dropped the ball a bit there. I mean, Richard did a fantastic job, I think, with the the chatter. He, mm-hmm. You know, there's chatter. There's a little bit of, of signs and things will change as the game goes on, but we didn't have the time required. I mean, really, if it was a, a, a decent-sized studio, we would have had someone devoted to just kind of altering the environment as you played through, so you that would kind of be building up. Mm-hmm. Um, I do agree, though, that it... People people will put the game down and not realize that something big's coming. You know, it's like call, it's called Space Pirates and Zombies, and people are just saying, well, "Where the hell are the zombies? <laughs> <laughs> They're there, but we kept them." I, I mean, we we really liked your 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 article when you were talking about how, you know, it was nice that we set up the world ahead of time. Like you get you kind of get. You kind of you start the game. You know how most zombie movies will start, and you're kind of in the thick of it. We start the game a f- couple months before that, you know. So you're kind yes. of getting used to the world and, you know, chilling out. And you really, you really, by the time the zombies show up, you kind of feel like you have a handle on everything. And then we just kind of rip the rug out and say, okay, now those are zombies now. You know? Yep. 
And, the, and that's, a, that's a rare, precious thing you guys have done. So I, I can think of one other game that does this. And, and I'll, I'll sort of throw this to you guys. Do you guys have any – can you think of any other games that have done that? They introduce you to the world, and then they break the world later on by flooding it with zombies. It's kind of obscure, kind of not. It's a huge AAA game. Is it a recent game? Yep, yep. Last couple of years. Okay, last couple of years. <laughs> Uh, You're not thinking of Red Dead, are you? Uh, the Undead Nightmares pack, absolutely, Richard. Uh, yeah. I actually really enjoyed that. I thought the Undead pack was better than the base game. <laughs> oh, I totally agree, Richard. Yeah. And, and what happens, though, is so you play Red Dead Redemption, and you get used to all these places, all these towns, and then you finish Red Dead Redemption, and you either liked it or you didn't, whatever. But then when you buy the Undead Nightmares pack, you play through that same area in the context of this this kind of strategic beating back the zombie infestation like you guys make us do in, in Space Pirates and Zombies. Uh, those are those are like the only two games I can think of that really create this sense of, you know, there's been a zombie apocalypse, it's ruined this world that you know, and now you have to go out into it and, and, and save it. Uh, That's so. a pretty good company to be in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, okay, so I want to point out something else, though, that I think you guys have done that very few zombie games get correctly. Uh, one of the fundamental aspects of zombie mythology and i'm going to geek out for, for a moment here is this idea that zombies convert people that you know that a loved one can turn into a zombie and betray you and i think of the uh the the pivotal scene in uh night of the living dead where the little girl in the basement kills her mother she you know she's been sick throughout the movie and then at some point in the movie the mother goes down into the basement to check on her and she's completely turned and she murders her own mother and it's this terrible horrible you know memorable scene is that a loved one will kill you now it's hard to do that in a video game it's hard to have a familiar character turn into a zombie and make it meaningful there's a cut scene that does something similar in dead island but it's it's awkward and a little silly so the way you guys create this sensation that zombies will turn familiar people into things that kill you is with your infested ships is you know you fight you know you see a crawler you pilot a crawler you know what it's like to to equip a crawler with all the beams that you want and to fly it around, and it's an awesome thing. And then later on, you see this perverted, gross, zombified crawler that you have to fight against. Uh, well, so I, I love that you went to the extra distance of making zombie-converted versions of your ships. Well, beyond that, it's in some cases, it's your crawler, too. Exactly. Um, you, yeah. you yourself you can You built it, and you loved it. And I you don't get it infected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All yeah. that <laughs> Yeah, it happens to my. Uh, I have a certain hammerhead I always build, a triple mount hammerhead, and when it gets when it gets converted, my heart just sinks because I know I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's all built. It's built for destruction. That thing better than anything that the the AI has has in its arsenal, and then it's oh, yeah. coming. You know, yeah. That's... All your cleverness is turned back on you. <laughs> so, so yeah. tell me about that conversion mechanic because I'm not sure I understand it. I think I have a handle on it. Uh, of course, it reminds me a lot of in Star Control 2. This, I think it's the Siren Penetrator can can like lure the crew out of a ship, and you see the little dudes floating around. And I love that you guys have something similar in Space Pirates and Zombies. Uh, early on, you you know when you're having to jettison crew members, uh, you see them floating around. But then eventually floating space zombies get onto your ship and they fight your crew uh t tell me a bit about the mechanics that are at work there yeah there's a well there's a whole zombie ecosystem which i'll probably get into later but the actual life cycle for a ship it's it's kind of evolved as well but how it stands now 
there's what we call critters floating around, which are our people in the game. We specifically made ships kind of be the characters in the game and not people. So people are are kind of have a little less value. They're more of a resource in the game. But anyway, uh, little little critters will come and they'll start banging into your shields. Mm-hmm. And eventually they'll do enough damage to your shields that your shields will go down. Then they'll start chomping on your armor. Once your armor gets down to about 50%, They'll start doing damage to your hull, and I think at about two-thirds hull, they'll make a breach and they'll start coming in. Once they come inside, they start fighting the crew on your ship. So if you have more crew on your ship, um, they're going to have a better chance of fighting off the zombies. In fact, if your crew uh, research level is really high, you can be pretty immune because zombies aren't as good fighters as crew are. But the upside of the zombies when they uh, when they attack your ship, if they kill one of your guys they have a pretty good chance of turning that into a zombie. So that one zombie on your ship is now two, and then they get better and better at fighting as there's more and more of them. Eventually what happens is that no one's going to be left on the ship. It's just the captain slash automated computer, whatever you want to call it, but it's the non-infectable guy. Mm-hmm. Um, that What will happen is that ship will take damage and damage and damage and start being converted, and once it gets to a certain threshold, it'll change over to be a zombie ship. And that exact ship that you had will now kind of morph into this thing with uh, meat goop all over it, and it'll start coming <laughs> after you. It changes faction. Um, at that point, it also starts being able to lay eggs, which is part of the zombie ecosystem, um, which those eggs then spawn breeders, which are good at uh, dropping the shields of ships to let the little zombies on the other ships. Um, it'll start spewing zombies, so the, the critters within the within the the ship itself will start breeding with each other and and making more and more zombies just spitting out meat spitting out meat taking over stuff uh it can be interesting to watch if you're cloaked and you watch just one or two zombies in a zone they will they will if they manage to take one ship over be able to create an entire ecosystem with eggs and breeders and infected ships and just you can't leave them alone they just they'll just wipe everything out so it kind of works like a nice little plague so Andrew, I, uh, I I love that you have done this, and I have suspected some of this was going on in the game. Uh, I'm sure I've logged at, at least 60, maybe 80 hours in this game, but I didn't know some of those specifics. And in a way, I'm a, I'm a little peeved that you did this really cool thing, and you let me play the game without necessarily realizing that all this cool stuff was going on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a struggle because uh, as it is our tutorials. I mean, Richard's done an absolutely awesome job. He did all the tutorials, mm-hmm. and us balancing the amount of data we give you versus you having to sit there and read twelve pages over and over because <laughs> we catch some flack for that as well. That there's a there can be a lot of a lot of data, but I mean there are things that people just don't know. We try and we try and tell it in the loading hints, but for example, if you pop an egg. You see that little blue or that little purple blast wave that comes off. That actually wakes up other eggs. It's like an alarm signal. Um, <laughs> so if there's other eggs nearby, they'll they'll blow up. If uh, zombies are floating, if you hit them at a certain speed, you can kill them versus them uh, latching onto your ship. Like you can splat them. So if you have a really fast ship, you can just sweep zombies with a, with a little race car ship. Yeah, there's lots of little little cute things that we we like to do. 
All right, so here, if I was you guys' producer, here's what I would force you to sit down and do. I would say, Richard, Andrew, you've created this great ecosystem, this ecology, and what it's making me think of is XCOM, is the aliens in XCOM, and what XCOM did is they gradually unfolded to the player a UFOpedia. And I would say, Andrew, Richard, before you release this game, I want you to create a, your ver- a zombiepedia that gradually has some gameplay mechanic where it explains to the player to the player like one little piece at a time the different pieces of this cool puzzle this ecology andrew that, that you just explained to me uh that's actually love... a really cool idea yeah uh so all right so if i'm your producer for uh space pirates and zombies too that's going to be on your to-do list <laughs> that's a very good idea i mean that is the kind of thing we like too we wouldn't force the player to read something like a, a zombiepedia or whatever it would be right but if you're interested and you want to actually know about all the stuff they're doing then that that would work pretty well i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of things people don't know like there's a the the zombies they have a, a nesting behavior they different zombie ships like to nest in different patterns like how they lay their eggs and uh, zombies will try and maintain a certain uh, population demographic so that's why you don't get um like well, they're called Bigfoots, the the zombies, yeah. like an octopus. You don't get two of those at, at once because one Bigfoot's presence um, prevents the hatching of other Bigfoots in the area. Stuff like that. If you if you pop an egg while it's while it's uh, um, generating, like you know how when an egg starts to bubble and froth, and you see the little embryo inside. I don't know if you ever just actually watched one, but there's many layers, and there's a little embryo that'll form inside the egg, and it twitches around when you shoot it. It gets upset when you shoot the egg, and it'll froth and go crazy. Um, <laughs> if you if you blow up the egg before the embryo's done, we call it a, an abortion, and it comes out weaker. <laughs> it's actually a little bit of a weaker zombie because you pop the egg before it was done cooking. So, yeah, there's lots of little things there that we could tell people. That's great. And that does make me want to take a stealth ship now and go into some infested area and just sort of watch this stuff. Because I'm, I'm busy, Andrew, when I'm playing, I'm just busy freaking out and trying to stay alive. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, you need to have a, a little nature adventure. We need yeah. a, a nature uh, commentator to talk about the little zombie uh, ecosystem. <laughs> Uh, one of the one of the things I also really like, and you talking about uh, getting a fast ship to splat zombies, is uh, how throughout the game, it feels like maybe not all the ships, but certainly most of the ships are still useful at certain times. I never feel like okay those those base uh, I, f- I forget if they're called like level one blueprints or but but the blueprints get increasingly powerful. There are different categories that you unlock as you're playing. And because I've always got a slot that has each tier of blueprint, you know, I always need some of the weaker ships around. And a lot of times I'll just throw something in there with as much survivability as, as I can. But one of the things I discovered in, in segment four is to make money, I just get a dart, which is the little level one super fast ship. I put thruster engines on it to increase its speed. And I do supply runs, which are these dynamic missions that pop up where I just have to fly around the universe in the little level and just hit 10 little supply points. And the idea is that I'm gathering supplies for the survivor. This is like my main way of making money. Before, it used to be mining. And that made sense. In this like civilized pre-zombie apocalypse world, I would just go mine somewhere. And the funny thing is I could even just let the AI do it and sort of walk away from the computer, and that was fine. 
But now it sort of feels like to make money, I'm doing supply runs in a little tiny level one ship. You know, I've got my Star Cruiser, which I normally fly around. That's how I usually play with as much firepower as I can pile onto a Star Cruiser. But sometimes I just fly around in a dart and do supply runs. So I love how over the course of the game, it feels like level one stuff can still be useful. Uh, what little tips can you give me for how to use other lower tier ships that I may not be aware of? Like, what, what are some other ways that you guys feel some of those uh, less powerful ships can still be useful? Um, well, a lot of the less powerful ships, like like you were saying, because we have kind of slotted tiers, um, even in Sector 4, you have a small hangar, so, so, you know, if you have the slot, you might as well be using it, because, you know, more gun shooting is more gun shooting at the end of the day. Um, but we do have things like the stealth missions, and those tend to not work so well when you have a large hulking ship that takes a long time to get from point A to point B, so if you're playing certain missions, like Supply Run is a good example, but we have, a uh, we probably have about a dozen or so stealth missions that require you to be cloaked or or do things under under time pressure. Like I'm sure you've played a few of the ones where you've got to clean up a bunch of rotten toxic barrels under a minute. So like these kind of things, when I'll play them, I'll load up all my ships with a tiny few tiny darts or whatever and load them up with engine boosters so that I can burn through it as quickly as possible mm -hmm. uh, and you know get the bonuses and all that kind of thing. Um, but one thing with tuning is that we're always trying to find ways to, to make those smaller ships a little bit more useful. And with, with some of the stuff that we have planned coming up, like arena combat, um, that should probably make those things even more appealing to people. So we'll have like arena combat events that will you know, require you to use a particular class of ship if you want to get a particular medal ah. or reward. So, so you know, there's been a few complaints that some of the smaller ships don't feel as useful as some of the larger ones. Um and that's something that we're going to keep working on as we go, but uh, there are definitely missions and events in the game where it's much better off if you use a small ship and a faster ship, or if you know, if it, you find it's one of those things where it's not directly combat related, but you're dying a lot, you might as well use a cheaper ship in order to get through the encounter. It's it's different. It's 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 a little difficult to try to make the, the different classes feel important when you have so many options. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. But it's just I a matter of, like, as we add missions, we're going to make sure that we leverage the different classes of ships. So, like, Arena Combat that's coming up will definitely do a real good job of that. Mm -hmm. I don't use uh, the smaller ones so much for damage now as for kind of hexing and crowd con control, uh, especially in Chapter 4. If you fit a, a volley with all SRMs, it does a pretty good job of keeping the critters off your other ships. If you fit a uh, turtle head with um scanners it can do a hell of a good job because the little the little ship is is buzzing around your fleet of keeping you know those annoying cloaked vessels ah yes that little scanner will find it for you so instead of wasting one of your your big slots on a scanner which you would be much better used for a booster to to you know help the damage of your big ship use one of those little ships as a as kind of a a, a backup helper another pretty nasty thing you can do is throw cloaking devices on those smaller ships because uh, when you're cloaked, you actually do a bonus, uh, one-third bonus damage. And if you put on, for example, um, let's say uh, an ion an ion beam, mm -hmm. uh, a cloak with an ion beam that comes out of cloak and hits something is going to knock the, that ship's shields down. Uh, if you hang back and let that ship do that job, it may or may not get killed, but you don't care because it's cheap. 
but then you're you're actually like fighting a, maybe a huge or something that's got no shields, which ah, could be a nice. <laughs> pretty big benefit. Um, <laughs> now, what other? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I want to hear. No, no, I want to hear well, other other another, tips like this. Another thing that you can use the the smaller ships for the ones that have uh, some crew space. Uh, you throw some uh, some crew cannons, or, or uh, for for a large ship, you can throw on uh, shuttle, and those are actually quite useful now that they weren't they weren't prior to 1.05, which is our newest patch, because crew are able, or I should say, marines that go on other ships, they're able to steal blueprints. Yes, they can steal black boxes, they can steal data, and they can re- rescue specialists. So. Uh, I tend to, even on my hammerhead now, I used to go with six, either six cannons or six beams on the triple mounts, mm-hmm. but now I have always a shuttle on one of my triple mounts, so that it's kind of like, got it, got it, need it, got it, if I see a ship <laughs> that has something I want, I fire out a bunch of shuttles. Well, now, the job. a couple of things that I only discovered fairly late into my playthrough uh, is the option to, I believe, request crew from some of your other ships is that correct like there's a there's a there's a hotkey for it even i think where yeah, you press yeah, it a hotkey. yeah uh and and so like that's like having a, a big bus for instance along just to carry extra crew if you if you need like i love this idea that that some of the vehicles are going to be support vehicles like you mentioned making what sounds like a little ecm an electronic countermeasure uh ship to run around with a scanner uh so i love this idea that because you are uh allowing us to play it's almost like a party-based rpg where you have your main character but you've also got other characters along you know you're allowing us to bring up to four different ships uh, into the missions uh later on gives us a lot more room to play with things and and that brings me to in the f2 screen i think it's the map screen you have some various ai settings uh that you can change how your friendly ships behave uh I kind of feel like uh, like this is a system that's not maybe as well developed as other systems in the game, or maybe it's just that I don't explain it, that I don't understand it as well. Uh, but but tell me a bit about those AI settings and how you intend the players t- to use them. Okay, well there's um, I'll go into just the AI uh, for like the the combat stuff, and Richard can go into the the rest. Um, so you've got uh, kind of an aggression mode. Uh, and and I first of all I agree I mean we we don't really have a, a huge tutorial for the tactics panel we kind of built it so that you could tell your ships what to do but you don't have to tell your ships what to do they kind of muddle through okay on their own they'll generally uh, prefer your targets and will follow you around and try and do the best they can to help you out but if you really want to tell a ship what to do you go there so anyway there's aggressive mode what that does is cont- tells your ships that yeah you're allowed to go run off and kill whatever you want uh, and they will actually leave you and go after things so still prefer to kill what you have near you but they can they they are allowed to go and run and 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 kill stuff. Everything is usually uh, defaults to defensive. That means follow the player around and um, don't straggle too, too far away from, mm-hmm. from there. Then there's passive, which actually will shut the guns off. Uh, there are cases where you don't want your ships to shoot, and that's that's kind of the, the best way to do that. Beyond and that's that... that's like the stealth missions? Like the idea is if I'm cloaked and I don't want my other ships to uncloak or reveal me, put them on passive? Yeah, just put them on passive. Okay. And they'll, they'll just hang out. Um... Another thing that you have is the um, it's kind of like the AI mode. So they're by default set to assist player. Uh, that just means wherever the player goes, follow them around and shoot what they shoot. But if you right click somewhere on the screen, 
you can tell them to guard a position. It'll, it'll draw a little green arrow to a position, and then they'll they'll kill stuff that comes around there based on their um, attack mode. So if they're on defensive, I think they chase about 2,000 pixels. If they're on aggressive, it's like 50,000 pixels. Uh, and if they're on passive, it's zero pixels, meaning they will not shoot. They'll, it just means go over there and sit down and shut up. Right? Oh, and they'll, they'll stay there. Like, it's not go to this waypoint and then come back to me. Like, no, if no, I get... just... Ah, that's I didn't realize position. that. Okay, yeah. good, good. Okay. Uh, if you right-click on uh, an allied ship, you'll see little blue arrows go to it, dark blue. Light blue means assist the player. Dark blue um, means go and that, that becomes your home position in that ship, and they'll defend that ship. If ah. that ship becomes hostile, they will also go and kill that ship. If that ship dies, then they revert. Everything always reverts to uh, um, protect player, assist player. Uh -huh. So no matter what you set in general, the AI... Uh, if it can't figure out what to do, we'll come back and help you. So it doesn't just sit off, you know, twiddling its thumbs for the most uh -huh. part. Unless you specifically say, "Go over there, go, go to the follow the green lines," which is really scary because in a lot of the the let's plays we watched early on, people would see the tactics panel and the first thing they would do is right click somewhere, and I, and we would see these green arrows go <laughs> somewhere, and our hearts would sink because they wouldn't realize what they've done. They're actually just bugger off. <laughs> so, yeah, and then they would say, "This game's so hard. No, no, don't do that." <laughs> you know, just let the AI do it. It's what it wants to do. Um, but yeah, Richard can talk about the advanced options and, and there's quite a few other little mining tricks and things that I'm sure people would like to know. Yeah, so Richard, yeah, what are, what are some other things we can do in this tactics panel? Uh, well, I mean, a lot of the stuff that the AI, you see the AI doing, like from the other factions' perspective, we wanted to give you as much control over that as possible. And like Andrew said before, and I'm typically this kind of player, is I don't really touch the tactics panel too much. I'll make a few settings and I'll kind of like leave it at that for, for the majority of the game. Um, but, I mean, you know, you've got control over a lot of things. Like, for instance, like you can recall your drones. Um, doesn't seem like something that's predominantly useful, but if all your drones have been killed and they're only petering out one every couple of seconds, ah. you're not really getting anywhere. You're not. At, but you can recall them, let them build up in your hangar bay, and then unleash them a dozen at a time, and then you can get the usefulness out of them again. Is there um, any indication, by the way, how many drones a ship has going at a time? Because I've, I've loved playing with the drone loadouts, uh, is there any way to know how many drones I have going, or if I call them back, how many are stored up? Sadly, we, we kind of need a little bit of an interface for it. We have, okay. like, these little color flashy states on the on the hangar bays themselves that are actually on the ship. Um, I can't actually recall what the color states mean at the moment, but I think there's yellow for construction, and then there's red for recall and these kind of things. Okay. Um, but, yeah, we kind of need a little bit. We need an interface for it. I mean, we've got the little widgets on the side of the HUD that tell you how many missiles you have available, so we'll probably end up adding something like that. Uh, Which, by the way, I, I love discovering that. And if I'm not mistaken, those little widgets that show how many missiles are available, isn't there always a, a, a visible counterpoint on the ship model for when a missile is, like, in a, in a rack ready to be fired? Yeah, if the missile's not visible if it's not ready to be fired. So if you when you launch your missile, you can see the empty canister sitting under your ship. And when the missile regenerates itself, it, it'll pop back on with a with a bright flash, and you can see it. And then the interface will get updated as well. So you're, you you generally know that is okay. My ship looks visually different when I've offloaded right. all my missiles versus when it's empty. And wait, um, and there is you're saying there is like a color coded component to that on the, the drone hangar that shows whether or not it's regenerating drones? Yeah, so if you were to try all the different drone states, you'll notice that the hangar bay's got 
you know, kind of like control lights, like you'd see from an aircraft, and it uh, it changes based on whether it's uh, regenerating drones or whether it's full or whether you're recalling them or you're storing them in your bay and that kind of thing. Now, before you before you tell me more about the tactic screen, which I want to hear about, uh, what's going on in the latest patch? Is there something about uh, drone attack power not being updated as you level up your drone tech? Or oh, I- I'll interrupt on that one. It's probably a little too much, actually. It used to be that. Drone guns used your gun tech to up, okay. upgrade, right? So a cannon, like a fighter drone uses cannons, and therefore if your cannon tech was high, they would do more cannon damage. Right. But people rightly said that if, well, hey, if I research a bunch of drones, my drones get, don't get any better at shooting. So we added a, a three times damage modifier over time to your, your drone uh, tech. Mm-hmm. So you can have pretty strong drones now to the point of um, right before the patch went out, uh, a fully leveled up drone using bombs could do 600 damage per shot, which is a little high. <laughs> <laughs> it was one-shotting huge, so that wasn't very good. But, yeah, we, we knocked that down. Probably needs to be knocked down a bit more. Drones are a bit strong right now. Okay, the so in the latest... In particular. I see. So in the latest patch, I shouldn't be dissuaded from using drones. No, you'll okay. be pretty strong <laughs> with bomber drones in particular. Okay, good. And, Glad to know, because uh, I'm really enjoying the drone play. Uh, all right, so, so Richard, tell us a bit more then about some of the, the settings on the tactic screen, some, some tricks we can do there. Well, another one that I kind of notoriously use is the turret setting. So I'll actually, I'll set all my turrets to be automated. Um, so you don't even have to click any mouse buttons to, to operate them. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the benefits you end up getting from this is that uh, all your turrets can actually now shoot and aim independently. So instead of shooting toward the mouse cursor or toward a target, they can now track multiple targets. So, for instance, where the super useful is load up like a crawler, which has eight ports with like a cheap laser or something like that. And then, you know, in sector four, when you're just getting your, you know, your ass handed to you by all these zombies, and now you've got all these independently firing missiles, I actually use... Or, or laser beams, sorry. I'll actually use that ship almost like as an advanced point defense ship just to keep off all the critters off of all of my other ships because it's got so much more ability to acquire targets than if you just had, if you were just using it on manual control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's a handful of things like that. Like, we, we, we let you have a lot of control over things like the cargo state. So, you know, by default, you know, your cargo state is. Uh, pick up cargo, and when your cargo holds full, your your ships will automatically go back and dump it off the beacon. But if that's a behavior you don't want, we want to make sure that you can turn that off. Um, you know, other simple things like being able to toggle your shields on and off. I mean, most of the time people aren't going to use this stuff, but, you know, sometimes, you know, you might find yourself in a situation where I need a little bit extra power. My shields are already down anyway. I need to fire off a couple more bullets. I go into the tactics panel. I've got the safety of it being paused. I can make these quick adjustments to my AI and my ships on a per-ship basis and, you know, go back into the game and, and do these kind of things. So it really depends on the play style. Like, I traditionally go in there, make a few adjustments, and then I'll play an encounter, and that's about it. But some people will, will go into the tactics panel every five seconds and <laughs> change something. And some of the missions, you have to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I found, actually, with the recent additions we made to the mass bombs, I go into the tactics panel a lot. Um, I'll actually get two mass bomb ships and put them on either side of a target, because now when they strike a ship, they'll try to evade all the all the explosives that come out. But if I have two ships on either side of you, on either side of my enemy, they have a hard time evading because they have explosives on either side. So you can be really, really tricky with how you lay your ships out. 
it's it's kind of like an RTS light mechanic, sure, but it yeah. all works while paused. So so I guess an example is kind of like um, like Dragon Age or Mass Effect, where you sure. can pause the game, make a few adjustments to your AI, and tweak a few things out, and and then kind of like see your attack uh, unfold. And if it's not working out, you can pause it again and and make a few adjustments. And of course, we have a few silly ones in there that most people don't use like self-destruct and this kind of thing which actually <laughs> does yield a greater explosive force than if your ship were to die naturally so there is a little use for everything we put in there but uh, mm-hmm. it's a lot of it's just for the people who really want to get into the strategy uh, we don't want to force people to use it but uh, there's a lot of stuff in there for the people who want to want to get really into the depth sure. of it now, uh, when ships explode, do they hurt my ship, by the way? Oh, yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Uh, is there a way to completely empty a hangar? Completely like if I want to go into a mission with no, and I've got my four ships built, and I want to turn in, I, I like want to refund uh, and empty a hangar, I just want to go into a mission with one little tiny ship. Is there a way to just... Oh, to yeah. sell the other ones. You get 100% back. We should have We should have labeled it better, but... There's no downside to hitting that cell key. Okay. Um, what what happened actually at one point in our development, uh, when you would when you would uh, warp into a level, there was a little bar at the bottom of the screen with all your ships listed. This is when you could still have 40 ships, right? Mm-hmm. And you had a little bar, and you said, "I want that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one." But it got really confusing as we tested it out with friends and family. They didn't understand what the hell was going on. So in the end, we decided, decided okay. 95% of the time, you want all your ships. If you don't want your ships, let it come. Tell it to go home. Like, just sell it. But it's, but I think people have a mentality that they think they're they're getting rid of it and losing some, some cash, but really you're not. You just right. you can just dump it, and, it, and it'll be at, at home. I quite often just use one ship, depending on the type of mission I want to be on. And that's the, the same... And that's the same with refitting as well. Like, all costs are refunded. When you refit or you degrade a type of equipment or a ship... That there's no cost for cashing things in, correct? Yeah, there's never a penalty for experimentation in our game. Right. We right. we want you to actually. Uh, I want to talk before. Uh, finally, I'm going to want to ask you a couple of things about the the future of, of Space Pirates and Zombies. But first, I want to talk about some of the specific ship designs. Uh, for a game that allows so much freedom in how I build my ship, and like you said, Andrew, you don't want to penalize experimentation at all, for a game that lets me get in there and change around the ships and change different builds, you guys have done a remarkable job also creating ships with personality. Uh, you, you know, I can tell you guys are Star Control fans, uh, and, and I love the fact that, that, you, that it doesn't take away from this sense of customizing or creating my own ships, as well as you, you know, offering me ships that have personality, that feel like they do specific things. You know, a grinder is completely different from a big bus, which is completely different from you know, your hammerhead that you mentioned, uh, from the, the little dart early on. Um, where do you guys – how is it that you guys – can come up with so many cool different kinds of ships. What what kind of inspiration do you have for, for all these designs that you have in the game? Well, art-wise, uh, I can let Richard speak more to the art of it, but mm-hmm. functionality-wise, we tried in, in Spaz not to have any repeats. So even with our weapons, if two weapons did the same things, aside from the first like civilian garbage version and the military version that came after, we didn't. We decided not to make like a hundred different cannons that all have slightly different 
damage and slightly different projectile speed, we decided, okay, a cannon is a big ball that shoots slow and hits really hard. And we decided a machine gun's a machine gun. There aren't ten types of machine guns, just a machine gun. There's a shotgun. There's a laser gun. You know, they all have to do one specific thing. When we went through the ship designs, it was the same thing. It was like, okay, uh, we're in the, the huge ships. We've got a lack of ability for drones. What would what would an aircraft carrier look like? And then Richard would go off, and he would decide, and he would build the sunspot. Like, it, he was real genius for that stuff. It's like, okay, I'm going to create this big, massive thing that can, can launch just an absolute ton of drones. I'll let him talk more about the art now, though. Yeah, so Richard, where does all that come from? Um, you know, a lot of it is just kind of fly by the seat of my pants, whatever I feel, whatever I kind of felt like making at the time. Like, uh, when we started the project, we were both really eager to just sort of get into it and start making stuff. So pretty much right away, I started drawing ships. Um, and uh, quite frankly, a lot of them looked like crap at first. Um, and we, you know, it was a very iterative process, but like the very first ship I ever created was the Ranger and it actually never changed. Um, all the way till the end of development. Um, and then the second ship I had created was the Mule, and it had gone through many, many iterations of, of art and that kind of thing. Um, one of these things I'm actually planning on doing is showing you guys what the ships looked like like a couple months into the project, because they really <laughs> didn't look way, the way they look now. Um, but, I mean, even if you look at like the backgrounds in the game, we just wanted to make something that was different, and it stood out. We didn't really want to conform to that black space star map metal everything no color you know we want we knew right away that the ships are going to be the characters and they're going to carry the game so they have to have all that character there are our character classes in a traditional rpg so you know when i built them in photoshop i would always start with like a shape and a silhouette to kind of make them stand out from the other shapes like you know how they would do for for a character in um like Team Fortress kind of thing. Yep. And then, you know, I kind of built like an art kit for how I would apply the look. Like, okay, if we wanted windows on the ship, I would. I had a common piece that we could assemble them all from. But but it really came down to the weird shapes that we had. Like like you said, a, like a big bus looks like a fat guy it's, <laughs> and that kind of thing. And, you know, the, the, the sunspot looks like this giant carrier kind of thing. And the freighter looks like this half cobbled together civilian piece of garbage and you know we and i had a i have i've always wanted to make a space game like this since i was a kid so i have a lot of pent-up creativity where i <laughs> kind of knew i was like all oh, these really cool ships from these movies that i've seen or like you know like the ship from event horizon or like star wars there's just absolute flood of inspiration so it really just came down to we needed a ship to fill a particular role and we knew what size it was going to be so i just sort of got down to drawing it and we would do some reviews and iterations and we ended up with what we ended up with and we're pretty proud with it so there's even a kind of a sense of like uh like you mentioned now what's the what's the long thin ship it looks kind of like the ship in 2001 that has a bomb in its tummy is it a freighter uh, that's the helix Helix, right, right. Like, like there, there, there are ships that. Uh, I mean, they're in addition to being aesthetically pleasing. Like a lot of them look like they really have in their design the slot where something goes. Like the grinder, for instance, which gets the the huge like cannon. You know, it's got that long thin channel down the middle of it, and it looks like yeah, that's a ship that would have one big old gun right right in there. Uh, so, so I love how. They look distinct aesthetically, but some of them also clearly have, like, a slot for their main purpose. Like, that's what that does. That's how I can tell that's what that does. Uh, I want you both to pick, and this might be hard to do, but I want you both to pick a favorite ship. 
I know what Andrew's favorite chip is going to be. <laughs> All right, let's, let's gonna, out him. Andrew's favorite chip is the Flora. <laughs> yeah, it is. Why do you like it's the Flora? not for combat, but not for combat. For combat, I never use it because I'm not much of a drone guy. But when Richard unveiled the Flora one day, I was like, I want to get a Flora tattoo. Man, I love the look <laughs> of that ship. All the ships up until then were, were very, um, oh, what's the word? Symmetrical. Mm-hmm. But that that weird bugger of a ship it just did something to me when i saw it in game it was just so different it just changed it felt like a sciencey ship like it was i think that was when richard richard had kind of this massive photoshop artistic level up about halfway through the project it, <laughs> it was awesome and i think yeah, that was the ship that started it we had to go back and redo a bunch of our old ships after that i think <laughs> uh the flora looks to me and i love that it's called a flora because it looks to me uh, like a leaf like if it's the one that I'm thinking of. Yeah, uh, it is. It, yeah. it is. It's 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 kind of, it's got man. We fought with that. It's got that side rail on the right. I think it's the right, and and we had lasers in there and we had missiles <laughs> in there and because we knew it had to have the thing. But when it had lasers in there, they would they because of the angle of the bloody thing, they would it would shoot out to the right too much and you couldn't aim the floor and the AI was having a hell of a time and <laughs> yeah, it's had a lot of, a lot of modification that ship, but it it. It was the moment of the huge art level up. Right. Now, I also like, for instance, the, so the, the hammerhead, assuming I'm thinking of the right ones, there's, there's a ship called, is it the, the right hook, that looks like the right side of a hammerhead? Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah and it sort of looks like, you know, this is a piece of the hammerhead. It's the right piece, and we're going to call it the right hook. The hammerhead is the gun with a, it's a ship with a huge forward-punching like array of guns. Uh, so I just love even the sense of ecology there in, in the, the ship aesthetics. All right, Richard, what would you pick? Do you have um, I'd probably have to pick the helix, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I um, lo- yeah. Now, am I right? Am I thinking of something else? Like, do, does it look kind of like the Discovery? Uh, believe, believe it or not, my inspiration for that ship was was exactly what you're saying. So that ship from 2001, but also combined with that ship from Event Horizon. I don't know if you remember that movie, but they had a long umbilical piece in the middle with two large compartments on either end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, uh, but yeah, those two ships are very similar, like from those two movies, and that was kind of what I was actually going for: some giant long stick-like carrier that would carry something. We didn't really know what it was going to carry at the time, and uh, initially that uh, that ship had a whole bunch of uh, side-firing guns like a pirate ship. And oh, right! Really, I forgot yeah. about that already. Yeah. yeah, it didn't really work out so well So because it was too hard for the AI to work, and it was too hard for the player to control these like, lateral-firing guns. And, uh, you know, it just, hey, look at the bomb. It perfectly yep. slots in there. So we ended up taking the, the bomb off of what ship it was normally on, which was actually the um, Big Brother, which was supposed to be a support ship. That ship went through so many iterations, it doesn't even look like what it started <laughs> out as. So a lot of the ships, we ended up having to juggle them around and, and that kind of thing to make them work. So even though they some of them look like they are supposed to do this thing that they're doing, some of them have totally changed from what we originally had. Like, even the Hammerhead, it was not a turreted ship to begin with. It was a totally forward-firing death machine. Mm-hmm. And then we figured that the that the the Star Cruiser was better fitted to that, so we actually swapped their roles. And, you know, there was some art rework that had to be done, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, we didn't stop touching the ships all the way until we shipped, actually. <laughs> Richard, isn't there, and I may be misremembering, uh, there was an old TV show with Martin Landau called uh, Space 1999. Didn't they also have some kind of, like, long Helix-esque ship? 
I could be misremembering. Sure, I don't think I've seen that show. I've okay. actually got a whole pile of like these really interesting um, space books from the seventies um, called like uh, Spaceship Two Thousand Ten or Space Wreck, and they've got some really they're really trippy, weird little books, and uh, they have some absolutely over-the-top, bizarre ship designs, and I keep them next to me on my desk all the time for inspiration, but uh, they're just so bizarre. Um, I wish I remembered the names of them or the authors, but... Uh uh, I was at a I was at a, like a flea market thing uh, several months ago, and someone there was a stand there with all of these like thirty five cent paperbacks from I don't know in the fifties and the sixties, and they were all in in uh, plastic, so because they were all so brittle and almost falling apart. But man, looking at the cover art on these old pulp sci-fi paperbacks, just amazing design stuff. I love that kind of stuff. Like what sci-fi used to look like way back when. You can't beat the hand-drawn stuff, eh? Yeah, God, this stuff's amazing, yeah. I actually bought a couple of them because I loved the artwork and then uh, made the mistake of thinking, I'm going to read these. (laughs) (laughs) They don't stand up. (laughs) They do not stand up, yeah. Uh, All right, so so how much can you say uh, about how well Space Pirates and Zombies has performed versus your expectations? Is it is it doing as well as you expected? Better? Could it do better? Like, I, I want to ask you, you know, how many copies have you sold? You probably can't say that. So just in general terms, how well is the game doing? It's done better than we needed to survive. Um, mm-hmm. So there will be uh, Spaz 2. There will be expansion packs. Um, we're, we're about to the level where we can make another project and not you know, have to ship when we're down to $400 again, but we're not, we're not far, far beyond that. I mean, we're not going to put our families in jeopardy again uh, this time. So that's, that's going to be a lot better because it was a, it was a big motivation of course, but it was also, you know, I've got a lot more gray hair than I did two years ago. When I see pictures of myself from before we started spaz and now I think I've aged 10 years. So it's, <laughs> we're doing okay at, at this point. We're, we're, we're past our projections and, and we think, you know, with, with future patches and with, you know, even interviews like this and, you know, it's great that you like the game as much as you do and are telling people about it, that it'll, it'll have kind of a long, longer life and what we'll, we'll be getting hopefully nickeled and dimed for, the rest of the development of Spaz 2, and you know we've still got the Mac to make, and we've got localization to do. So there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunities still. Well, you you mentioned uh, expansion packs for add-ons. I know when I go to the title screen, I am teased with. Uh, Richard spoke a bit about what you guys can do with the arena challenges. The other one that catches my eye on the title screen, uh, bounty hunters. Uh, so that's something that you, that the title screen for Space Pirates and Zombies says is coming. Uh, what what is that? Well, from there's a couple components to it. Um, one thing is they're going to have ships that are of a new faction, so they're they're fairly special, and their ships. I mean, it's not fully fleshed out, so everything has to be taken with a grain of salt right now. Richard sure. and I have to sit down and have some beers and really go go through our old notes because our original notes are from months ago, and with how things change on this project, they change a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but remember, if you like Star Trek, you remember. Um, the Defiant, right? It was a small ship that was way overpowered. Mm-hmm. Kind of, it would rattle apart under its own firepower. <laughs> They're going to have those kind of ships, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So they'll be a little harder to use. They'll be a little harder to get, but they'll be uh, good for certain things. I mean, one thing people really, really want is a huge bomber, and most likely that will be the the uh, bounty hunter's bomber. Mm-hmm. Um, what is when I when I when I play? Uh, 
one of the uh, I, I think one of the criticisms that gets leveled against the game sometimes, which I, which I feel is completely unfair, uh, is that there's a lot of grinding. Uh, and I don't think you can call it grinding when it's something you enjoy doing and when it's something that is as variable and as exciting and can unfold as many different ways as the combat in Space Pirates and Zombies. Uh, but, but I think part of what's at the heart of that criticism is that you spend a lot of time playing Space Pirates and Zombies. It's not a game that you play for 10 hours and then it's over. Uh, it's a game that you invest in, you're building things, you're trying different things, you're exploring, you're uncovering new things. Uh, and because of the heart of it, the moment-to-moment gameplay is this combat, some people just throw in the term grinding, which has a negative connotation. I agree with the sentiment, but I disagree with that, that that should be a criticism. But one of the things that I think, as I'm playing, and as I realize how much time I've sunk into it, is that this would be a great couch game. Uh, surely you guys get asked, can this be a console port? You know, I want to sit on my Xbox 360 and play this. I want this to be an Xbox Live arcade game. Uh, is that something you hear very often? And am I correct that a huge obstacle to that would be the controls? Yes. <laughs> we, we, we want, we've talked about it for a long time and want to do it. It comes down to um, priorities. In in the end, I think it would probably make the most money out of, out of all of the uh, the skews, it would also be a massive undertaking just because the the horsepower required, even though it's a two, uh, uh, 2D game, mm-hmm. is so high right now. I don't know if an Xbox can do it because um, it's, it's not video horsepower. It's it's mostly CPU ah, horsepower. Ah. Um, that's the thing that, that that's really quite strange because... Our engine is a little older, and it doesn't it doesn't do multi-threading. And sometimes people with older machines actually have a little bit of a better time with <laughs> with Spaz than the newer ones because, yeah, you've got eight cores, but they're all 1.8 gigahertz, so it's it's choking. <laughs> um, that that can happen quite a bit. To speak to the grinding, um, I think what it really comes down to for a lot of people is, you know how. After you get out of the tutorial, we put that that big green arrow on the star map that may or may not be twenty systems away, <laughs> yes. and we say and we say, go there. And what happens is there are, there's a certain set of people who think that we are demanding that you go there right now and in a straight st- line, in a straight path, line, right? <laughs> and, and don't don't you dare deviate from this linear course to that star. And in which case they have a very unenjoyable time. Ah. And it's almost like we need to have a like an are you sure or some kind of explaining <laughs> dialogue when you come out of the tutorial. Like you don't have to go there right away. You don't, you don't, you don't. You're meant to explore. You're meant to try and build yourself up. You're meant to just kind of look around and chill. Um, and the people who do that seem to really have a lot of fun. The people who go, I must get to the green arrow. Um, they will, like, as soon as we hear of someone who's like been having these 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 adventures where they're just, you know, mining for forty five minutes, going up against a stargate and having to go back and mine for forty five minutes, like, okay, why, why don't just back away? You know, it's it's like in a in a game if the, if you turn left, there's a dragon, and you turn right, there's a rat. Turn right and go after the rat. Kill the rat. Don't kill the dragon. Um, <laughs> but there's a green arrow on the dragon. 
<laughs> Leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, I mean, I saw that and I was immediately like, okay, I'm going to go in a straight line there. And when I ran into resistance, you sort of pull back and you say, okay, well, there's all these other systems and there are little buttons over on the right that let me highlight which systems will give me goons, which will give me data, which will give me res. So rather than park at one place, I can go unlock all these other systems. Some of them have the little symbol showing me there are new blueprints or there's new tech there. Uh, I feel like you guys have kind of done all you can to, you know, you know short of uh, are you sure disclaimer yeah. to present, you know, there's this big old universe and there's all these little carrots that are calling me to different spots in the universe, uh, in this, this galaxy. Uh, so, yeah, that's... Uh... Maybe the green arrow is a little bit too bright. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a different, different color, a nice, cool, relaxing blue. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, so uh, you, you have then mentioned, and I know here as well as elsewhere, you have mentioned that a Space Pirates and Zombies 2 is something you want to do, and I think you've said that the, the multiplayer aspect is something that you are, you are considering at this point. Uh, can you talk much about what your ideas are there? Well, we haven't um, spent any time designing Spaz 2 because we're still working on <laughs> finishing up this game. Mm -hmm. We know that uh, the IP is good, and we know we have fans, and we kind of we love what it developed into uh, Spaz. We also know there's a lot of things that we want to want to change and, and want to explore in Spaz 2. We don't know exactly how. Um, I mean, for example. You know, we can't really call it Spaz Two if it doesn't have zombies, but it might, you know, it might be something that takes ah. place after the first the first story or before or, you know, it's it, there's a there's a lot there's a lot to to consider there. But we do realize how well multiplayer would have fit with you know how you you build your ships. I mean, a lot of our inspiration was was a game called MechWarrior. Two and MechWarrior Two Mercenaries that came out many years ago and was multiplayer, uh, very robust uh, ship or ship mech design. Mm -hmm. I, I, I blew years on that online. Um, <laughs> that was when you had to go on your on your modem and you know connect to a specific server somewhere. There was I don't even know if there was an internet then or what the hell. Um, but anyway, um, we want that for for the next title, but that will require, uh, in this case, an engine change, uh, rewriting everything. Um, it's a, it's a big, uh, big investment, but we are going to do it. Um, one thing that we're, we're going to, we have to kind of, uh, hedge our bet a bit before we go into SPAS2 development and make sure that we have enough money put aside as well. So what we're going to do is keep expanding our first product, SPAS, uh, keep building up the audience. I mean, we've got this free expansion that's coming out. We're going to have a paid expansion that's, it is more like our expansions are like expansions tended used to have been as well, quite a bit bigger. Mm -hmm. um, so not so much nickel and diming, uh, like here's your horse armor sort of expansion, but here's a, an entire new chapter of the game sort of expansion is what we have in mind. Mm -hmm. um, after that, if we can, we, we probably really would like to get a, um, a standalone done. So with the engine, but with an introduction with our new ideas to what we'll do in Spaz 2. Mm -hmm. So that'll, that'll be something as well. 
Great. Good. Well, uh, Andrew Hume, Richard Cliff, I've really appreciated talking to you guys today. And, and above and beyond that, I've, I've really appreciated the game that you've made. Uh, you guys have just done a fantastic job. Uh, you know, it's only, what, early October, but I can say with absolute certainty that this is one of my ten favorite games of the year. Uh, even if everything between now and Thanksgiving is awesome, I know there will be a spot on my top ten list for Space Pirates and Zombies. You guys have just done phenomenal work. Awesome. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Well, and I appreciate you guys hanging out with me today, and uh, best of luck with the game. Thank you, Thank Tom. You. All right, take care now.